Welcome to the Practical Futurist podcast, a bi-weekly show all about the near-term future with practical advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and practical futurist, Andrew Grill. Welcome to episode 10, yes, 10 of the Practical Futurist podcast. Today's guest is Lauren Walker, who is the Chief Operating and Data Officer in EMEA for leading agency Dentsu Aegis. Lauren joined the group in 2017 from IBM and leads a team of more than 600 people across operations, market research, social science, digital and data science, and engineering. She spent a decade at IBM with a raft of senior roles, most recently head of data strategy partnerships for Europe. Lauren was also Director of Competitive Strategy at ChoicePoint, now part of LexisNexis, and spent two years as a Special Advisor to the Director of the White House in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you, Andrew. Good to be here. Now, we first met even before I joined IBM. If I remember correctly, I was the CEO of Influencer Platform Cred, and I presented to you and some of your colleagues in early 2013. So apparently what I said struck a chord because six years later, here you are on a podcast. Of course it did. Come on now. I remember that day in South Bank. Wow. So what does being a chief operating and data officer entail day to day? Oh, it's an evolving feast of activities. The interesting thing is when I joined Densuegis after leaving IBM, one of my requirements in coming in was I spent 10 years in data and technology, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And if there's one thing I learned, it's the person with a P&L with a revenue figure is the one that gets stuff done and gets the assets. So my request to the management when I was doing interviews was very much, give me a revenue number, data should be on the P&L, and hold me accountable to the things I want to to do and let's actually make this a data-driven business. So it was very much about CEO positioning for the CDO role when I came in. And through that, I think I was able to really transform the business's view of having data be a front office activity as well as a back office activity. Yeah. Data is actually an asset to have. Yeah, and it's great. So I would go to these roundtables, and we work a lot with PwC, and so we were talking with the accountants and saying, how do we get this on the balance sheet? Will it ever happen? And I do see this momentum of people saying, it is something like brand, like goodwill. It it has to be accounted for. And if you look at the Equifax scandal with the data leakage, it has fundamentally impacted their entire market capitalization. So it it is critical importance. Well, hopefully on this podcast, we'll understand how important data is. And you're right, it's got to be on the, like goodwill, it, it is an asset that people have. And I think as people understand more the data they have available, it'll become more valuable and probably will be on the P&L for every company. Yes. And I think it's only becomes apparent once you have the right organizational design Mm. to take advantage of it. And so that's how I actually ended up evolving into the chief operating officer at Dentsu EMEA now is because it became apparent that while we have data in all these different places, do we have the roles and the right skills to actually make sure the data goes through a process that leads to the ability to make decisions off of this trusted data. And having spent 10 years, we've done it together, right? There's been accounts that we talk to together where you look at all of the information that's in the digital universe, a lot of the stuff you focused on with social, how does it then map into the internal information like Mm. CRM and all this other information you have to actually give you a full picture of what's going on? So that requires this whole thing of digital transformation, right? Which is now the latest stat I saw 
is digital transformation consulting is worth $44 billion globally, which is an 80% increase between 2016 and 2019. So yes, my years are a bit off considering it is 2019 now, but that's massive, right? That's huge growth. And it's because everyone's trying to figure out what do I do? How do I look like a Google and Facebook? It's not an overnight thing. Talk for another time, but I think digital transformation is often misused because people do a fake transformation. They say they're doing it, yet they can't get on the Wi-Fi. And so <laughs> there, are, there are the hygiene factors, and I get this all the time. You are obviously very passionate about data. It's a subject close to your heart. I'd argue we're just drowning in it. So what can companies do to start to tame the data they hold? Oh, gosh, where to even begin on that one? Well, I'll give you two kind of like stories, right? So one story for us is being an agency, right, that's helping clients understand what is my brand strategy? How do I even understand how I drive someone with their emotions and their aspirations to buy this Louis Vuitton handbag. At the same time, how do I convince you that when you're thirsty, you want Dannon water or Nestle water or some other sort of a branded water, right? Whether the differentiation literally is the brand again, it's yes. not this aspiration. So when you look at all the data assets we have, we're using data assets that we get from Google. Uh, we get data assets from Facebook. We get data assets from our own market research. So we are literally drowning in data on consumer opinions. And mm. you need to have the understanding of each of the data sets is coming through a particular lens, and then you're analyzing it for a particular outcome. So you really have to start to think about each of these data sets has been created with a particular group of people for a particular end goal. And then it's bringing all those three things together, knowing that one is coming from digital, one's coming from, let's say, offline. And how do those combine to say, this is the ideal archetype of person that we think is our muse and the person that we actually want to buy our product. And then how do you then use that externally to buy this billboard, to buy this TV spot, to do whatever digital campaign, and also to advise how do I evolve my product You know, with Adidas? How do I evolve my shoes over time so that while everyone loves it today, I want them to love it for the next 30 years? So that's like one, one side of the story. The other side is I'm currently rolling out Salesforce CRM internally inside my company, as well as Workday, as well as D365. So we have three massive, wow. massive master data systems of yeah. record for our finance information, for our HR people information, our talent, and then our actual pipeline. So that's a whole other set of data that you can drown in. And if you don't, again, make sure that the people using it understand what the tool is for and what the definitions are for each, let's say, you know, cell, then it becomes useless. So the, the drowning thing is quite interesting how there's a functional drowning in my operating role, and then there's the whole creative marketing media side of how do I use that to then drive a business outcome around people buying something. You know, often in my keynotes, I challenge the audiences to look at all the sources of data they have and how they might acquire. I'll give you a good example. I spoke to Technogym, who do gym equipment, and a bunch of gym owners. I said, look, you all have free Wi-Fi in your gyms. Do you know that because everyone has a unique MAC address, you could find out where people move around the gym and how often they spend on the treadmill versus... And they went, we haven't even thought of that. The data is actually there. You can actually go and get the data, but they don't know what to do with it. So you sound like you're drowning in data you know that you have. And I try and actually open up sometimes the source of data. And I remember I did it for a train operating company. I did my keynote. Then an hour afterwards, we had these roundtables. And I forced them in the groups to say, think of all the other sources of data that you have. How do you get it? And if you had it, what would you do with it? And their eyes were just open because we didn't know we had access to all this extra data. But the challenge, as you said, is even if you have it, 
you're still drowning out. Uh, and you have to, and that's why the multidisciplinary teams that we've created, we had all these folks in their individual silos of, I do performance marketing and most of my stuff is digital analytics. I'm just doing data platforms and engineering. I'm just looking at market research and people who answer these kind of response pilot group information. Once you bring those brains together, you literally have an anthropologist here, you have a data scientist, a statistician, you have a variety, and then you have, say, say, a computer scientist, and you have this mix of people who are combining the, the best of the right brain and left brain thinking, still probably more right brain, because it's not as completely like uh, picturesque, but very data-driven about what does this actually mean, and what do we as a group want to do about this? And I'll never forget it. Vicki Brock, who's the CEO of Clear Returns, she was a big SPSS customer and used to speak for IBM at a lot of events, and so I still follow her today. But she had that idea, let's get these young people in to think and problem solve around these data sets. And I feel that that's what I saw a lot in, in my IBM role is people hiring data scientists and just th saying, here's the data, like find the answer. And that is never the right outcome or the starting point, let's say. And a lot of the data scientists would say, this is unfair, but I'm getting paid a lot of money, so I better try to figure this out. And so it's, I think it's evolved now that you see data scientists who've kind of leaned into the business, who've picked up a domain, who've followed on that area and, and can speak the language. But that's where I feel so fortunate with my career, having been a political science and Spanish double major, did some stuff in politics, as you mentioned, end up at a data company, and then went to IBM, where I learned loads of things that really have made me where I am today, right? The, the, the process, the exposure on multinational level was huge. Even your current company, it sounds like data got you promoted. Yeah, it did. It did. I'm loving it. <laughs> Brings me neatly to the role of the chief marketing officer. The, the CMO role is evolving and it has to evolve. I'm seeing the required CMO skill sets now moving into an area where they must be both data and tech literate, not just having mastered the discipline of marketing. More recently, we've seen the rise of the chief digital officer, CDO, to bridge the CMO and CTO roles. What's your view on the digital literacy needed for these C-suite roles going forward? And is the chief digital or data officer here to stay? So fantastic question. So uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite topics, right? So I thought when I laid out my career plan, right, especially as I was looking to leave IBM, it's like, I'm going to be a CMO. Like that to me is the pinnacle of, I, I don't want to be a CEO, but a CMO. That, that to me is where you're really driving the combination of the data, the technology, and still that creativity of how do I stand out from all the other competition? Yeah. What I've seen, especially in this agency role where we're working from both marketing side and media side, along with actually CRM departments, I'm seeing this, the fact that most marketers use 15 different tech applications that are best of breed mm. because they'd prefer to use best of breed means that marketing is massively siloed. And I think that is at the detriment of the ability of the CMO to run that as a fully oiled machine. What I also see is in the people that we work with in our client side, more and more of the digital data oriented folks are the ones getting promoted. So I do think it's without a doubt that those who came from more traditional brand background CMOs, they will have their day again, I'm sure. But for now, it's definitely the data tech types yeah. and it, especially the folks in digital because there's a desire to do this one-to-one -one marketing. And coming to the UK nearly 10 years ago, 
the U.S. has a huge amount of data, so you can do that one-to-one targeting. The laws are very different. For us over here in the EU with GDPR and so forth, it's actually more about, let's say, contextual targeting now. And so you really have to begin to understand, how do I use all the tech in an appropriate way to really triangulate to what I want this person to do? And where do I use all of the data and tech and channels to achieve the brand marketing that gets you to buy into that long journey of, I love this brand. I love John Lewis. I really do. So by the way, John Lewis, I love you. So, (laughs) So I love that shop. And so if you think about that, therefore, as people look for places to buy in a very noisy attention disruption environment, you need to be able to guide that. And so I do believe that the digital officer is actually uh, oftentimes evolving into the CMO, but they have to have that understanding of that market research, that brand side. Mm. And I know Matthijs Preschern, who used to work with me at IBM as well, he's done a couple CMO roles, and he's been quite vocal on LinkedIn about, let's not forget the right and left brain of marketing. But there definitely is, back to digital transformation, loads of technology companies coming in, selling the dream, marketing transformation. It's the new ERP, didn't you know? And that's where I'm, again, as a client of Salesforce, but also a partner with Salesforce, we were the number one agency partner for Salesforce last year. I know that that is a big part of what's going on. So it's actually the CFO, the CEO, and the CTO who I think are buying the tech that the CMO then has to use. So if that CMO is not skilled up to understand it's about the process and the people that are in 15 silos, that's part of my dysfunction, the technology is not going to solve that. Now, like you, I was glued to the Netflix documentary, The Great Hack, which focuses on the Cambridge Analytica expose from 2018. What can we learn from this? What did you learn from it? Oh you, my! You as freaked out as I was. I, I mean, I have to say, having worked on political campaigns, having worked in the White House and studying politics, this really hit me near the core of my heart, especially because I do believe in the fact that all of us should own our own data. Having worked at Choice Point, uh, which spun out of Equifax, which is now part of LexisNexis, I understand the importance of having these data brokers and data aggregators who can help us understand pre-employment screening and make sure we're screening the right people and that the right people have credit. But let's make sure the credit scores are built on things that are not biased because there's a confirmation bias that's in the yes, data models. Yes. Just a little side note there. <laughs> So all of that stuff going on, I do worry that Facebook had great intentions in the beginning to connect people. And at this point, I was listening to a podcast yesterday where they said there's something like $50 to $100 CPM rate buys going on of Democratic primary candidates through Facebook. That usually would be a a dollar or less. So the fact that Facebook is now essentially a weaponized data machine, people don't really realize what's going on. And I think to some degree, while Facebook may try to fix that, I think it's almost beyond their control. And so I do worry that because the government regulation is really far behind understanding what Facebook can do, we need to really review, is Facebook a technology company or a publisher. And if it's a publisher, then we need to really look at it as CBS Viacom. We need to look at it as whatever Oath and Verizon are now and all the other big multinational TV plus print publication companies are. And I think that's why they're struggling, right? So you've pretty much got the walled gardens of Amazon as we call them, right? I didn't know that term when I was at IBM, but you got the wall gardens of Google, Amazon, and Facebook. Of course, you got Tencent, and you've got Alibaba. So you literally have, that is where you do all your digital marketing. And so back to my obsession and my client's obsession with targeting people, most of the marketing dollars now to talk to people are not going into television. Maybe they're a little bit into Netflix as it opens up. They're not going into like the BBC for sure, maybe Channel 4 and otherwise. 
but we're actually starting to create this monster that feeds itself such that the only news we'll ever see will actually come through those walled gardens who are bigger than any government. And so as a human being who believes in free will still to some degree, I do think people need to understand what value exchange is really happening here. And with Google, I think we get a gateway into the internet, we get maps, we get this other information. I think Facebook is is a bit different in terms of the true value it brings to humankind. You said my favorite phrase, value exchange. I talk about it a lot in my keynotes that the consumers are now becoming wiser. I think what happened in 2018 when Cambridge Analytica and the Guardian expose happened and it then made the front page of the news and the Evening Standard and all the, all the tabloids around the world. People on the street were going, Facebook did what with my data? I'm Australian, so I spent a few weekends ago, I spent a whole weekend reading a new report by the Australian government. They basically looked at the market power of Google and Facebook in Australia. Now, you might say Australia is a small market, 23, 24 million people, but the ACCC, the Competition Commission, did a really deep, it's 600-page report. They even went to look at the privacy controls and how you can't negotiate when you actually want to sign up for a Facebook or a Google. And if you've got four hours of your time, it would be a, a really interesting thing to read because because I think what's come out of what's happened in Australia will happen here in the EU and eventually the US. They are becoming very, very powerful. I'm going to take a risk with the next question. I talk a lot in, in my keynotes about a thing called digital agents. And given you work for a leading advertising agency, this might be a little bit uncomfortable, but, okay. but bear with me. The, the digital agents are AI-powered personal assistants that combine all of the data on us that already exists on our phones, our next meeting, our next plane trip, our bank balance, when our health insurance is due, et cetera. It helps manage the minute of our lives. And if you have a personal assistant, he or she might do some of that for you at the moment. But imagine an AI machine. You've got two mobile phones in front of you. Your whole life is on that, and AI would be very powerful. Now, this is where, if I'm in front of an audience full of marketers, they become very uncomfortable. I think, as a futurist, we're three to five years away, possibly sooner, from having our own AI-powered digital assistant run our lives and do digital deals in milliseconds with our trusted suppliers via APIs or application program interfaces. This means that we'll have to write ads for robots because I'll never see traditional advertisement. This could change the advertising industry forever. How do you feel about this near-term futurist view? Love it. Andrew, I love it, which is I really believe in brand marketing and the long-term connection that you have as a consumer with a brand rather than the performance buy it now, get you down the conversion funnel. And I do think that there's a lot of marketing that we get that's get you down the funnel, so to speak, marketing terms that we are not massively appreciative of. And that's where you hear a lot of people say, oh, that ladder advertisement's following me all around the internet and it's showing up inside my my news It's not retargeting, it's dumb targeting. Yeah. And, and, And part of it was actually the GDPR and the ICO interpretation of GDPR consent, the current situation now in France, the ICO in France, I forget, I forgot the, the name of the actual um, body has a French name, obviously. Yes. They have a now legislated, it's going to affect in July of next year, that most of the cookies that are on a website now have to be automatically opted out to the extent that it's only the very, very essential elements that were allowed, which basically means that the cookies you have for even UX design and the Google Analytics that that would allow you to say, ah, I bought this search ad and now I'm on this you know, web page, we won't be able to do that anymore. I'm kind of sort of pro it because I feel like as a consumer, I should be going to the website I know I want to buy stuff in, but that may end up just being, again, Amazon, Facebook, or Google rather than the brand's own website. So it forces the brands to be content providers, add value to my life about not just why this widget is 
five times faster, but I actually derive emotional value from this thing. So a particular brand that I wear, it makes me feel better and part of a tribe, right, or a guild. And you'll tell your tribe and you'll become your own influencer. And if you say something is good, I'll probably believe you because I know you. Exactly. And that's why we've seen so much with Instagram and Twitter and so forth with all of these social media influencers. They, they Hey, I mean, look at, look at the number of influencers you have because people believe what you say. They find it interesting. And that is, I think, how things will evolve. So to the, to the robot point, I think if that does happen, it's a great challenge that we should take on board. But it's because I believe in the power of brand and long-term planning. And I think what's happened is with Wall Street and other short-term thinking of the way people are paid, people are thinking more short-term than long-term. And therefore, uh, I do worry that there will be no brands, right? That everything seems to be the same. And we do, almost through the robot, just say, this is what they said to buy. So I'm just buying that because my automated you know, Black Mirror episode said I should be this. I, I think the brand thing actually speaks to my model of the digital agent. Because if it learns my preferences and it learns that I'm always on the John Lewis website, I'm always buying things from John Lewis, then when a digital deal comes through, my agent will go, well, Andrew, we know he likes John Lewis, so we'll let that through. But if some other TK Maxx comes through and you've never dealt with them, other than me not seeing the ad, it just won't get through. So the copy will have to be content that my AI assistant has learned that I'm actually interested in. And it'll have to have a wide enough filter to go, you know what? He hasn't dealt with this other brand, Selfridges, before, but we know it's similar. So we'll let it through and see if he responds to it. And I think that sort of learning will actually help brands have a great brand story rather than, as you say, get in the funnel and get out of there. But let me just go even a step further, which is super exciting. Some of the stuff that we're doing is because of the attention economy, as we call it uh, at Densi Regis. We have started to work with production companies to almost go back to the 1920s, where it was brought to you by Campbell's Soup. But instead of it being that overt, we're actually doing programs that relate to the brand and then the content. And the brand's product is within the actual program, but it's just there. And this, to me, is advertising at its best, right? You don't even know you're being advertised to, but it's there. And if you watch Mad Men, how many times do you see a cigarette or them drinking? Do you not want to smoke or have a cigarette by the time you've watched like three (laughs) series, you know, three episodes of of Mad Men? You don't even know what's happening. And so I think good marketing is subliminal. And you end up doing something. And that's where... Again, it's the coordination of all the different channels you have together, and you're receptive because advertising is not noise, it's content. And I think that is the beauty, and that's what I love about my job, is how do we figure out the right operating model to make sure we have all the right skills working on all the different options that we have with the data available to help have data-driven brands and really happy consumers, because that's kind of the point. So the skills thing is an interesting question. So what subject should any future leaders listening to this podcast be studying now to ensure they take advantage of this new rich digital world? It's going to sound crazy, but I kind of feel one part of me feels like anthropology and social science, like understanding people and human behavior is really critical. And then you can't not, I mean, you have to study technology. And I don't think, and this is really important to me. Because, again, I'm a poli-sci and Spanish double major. And while I did statistics and we did data you know, surveys and research, I don't think you need to succeed in data and tech being a STEM person. And I think it's really important because if people don't have the inclination to do maths all the time mm. uh, and engineering, you can understand that by joining a technology company as one of the first jobs you do with your domain of finance, of marketing, of HR, whatever it is, and understand how the technology helps you do your job better, 
And I'll never forget, Gaurav Deshpande was my first manager at uh, IBM. IBM had bought Trigo. And he's like, Lauren, if you're going to do product marketing, you have to understand how this product works, and you're going to scripting camp. And wow. here I went after my MBA. I was like, you know, I'll hot to trot. I got my marketing MBA now. I'm at IBM doing this cool job. And he's like, go to this class. And the first two days were about using the, the technology. And then it was into scripting. I was like, I've never done this before. But I loved it. And so from that day, I always credit him with, you have to know how something works to make it better, to sell it, and to adapt it to whatever you know environment you're going to use it. And so that is part of the ethos I still have today, that I need to know what are the ingredients in this thing. And most of the time, this thing is technology. So, so how does this work? I'm the same. So while I'm a technologist and I study technology, I like to take things apart and understand how they work. So, for example, a few months ago, I bought a Wi-Fi pineapple, which is actually used by hackers to be a man in the middle attack. Now, I'm not a hacker, but I wanted to understand how it worked and how vulnerable that people were. And I, I really have a, I call it digital curiosity. How does this work? How does this product work? And how p- will people use it? So you have the word data in your job title or, or one of them because you've got a long job title. <laughs> what does it mean to be a data person? Yeah, so this is this is an interesting one. I have kind of the, the three lessons I've kind of learned in life being in accidentally to some degree the data field, right? And one of the things I found is the important things about being a data person is understanding your confirmation bias. And I think Tally Sherrott, who from the UCL, she's done a lot of talks on the confirmation bias. And I saw her at one of the Huxley Summit meetings a couple of years back. And I brought it back to my teams and I said, wow, if you really think about this, in, in data science, and in Google and in, in Fair Isaac, there's a FICO score that does our credit scores. Who wrote those algorithms and and what background did they have? And Fair Isaac was founded in like 1969 by two guys in the West Coast of California. So how much of that model is still the same and was written by those two guys in California that had a particular view of what was credit worthy and not? And there's been loads about the underbanked not being accounted for and people with cash under their mattresses. And we have Brexit coming up. So maybe there's more of those now. There's Brexit coming up. I had no. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you do have the confirmation bias thing you have to be aware of. And if we didn't have it, like as humanity, we probably wouldn't be here, right? Because it's trying to help us make sense of everything. We have to so, We have to have an opinion. You have right? to have an opinion about something. Exactly. And that's why it's important to know your bias is there and then surround yourself with people to challenge that bias. Okay, so that's like the part one was like the, the kind of this data lens. The next part for me was about understanding what is going on in the digital marketing and media ecosystem. So that really started to blow my mind because I didn't know how much data Google, Facebook, Amazon really had. And once I started looking at the consolidation of this industry, another stat I have is that $95 billion is the forecast spend in intelligence technology and wow. marketing technology. $95 billion that's huge. In, by 2021. So that's insane. And really what that comes down to is you have Salesforce that's a fantastic company growing right fast and has essentially your CRM and your marketing data inside what I'd say is your enterprise. Then you've got Google that has all the data outside your enterprise. And those two are really well-coordinated partners. Like Google uses Salesforce tech, Salesforce uses Google tech, et cetera. Mm. Put that together. Holy God. That's Google has 7 billion people on their platform. Salesforce has everyone's CRM. Literally, there you go. Done. I've got my entire connected value chain of all consumers with one ID. So that's kind of amazing in terms of understanding how does technology empower data and who are the vendors that are deciding the future landscape of, you know, IBM had the mainframe. This is the next kind of iteration in that. And I will also say, I do think Microsoft and Adobe will be another one. And what if Amazon team up with SAP? Wouldn't that be interesting? So just some 
thoughts out there on that so one? So these big tech companies are getting almost too big and regulators are now getting a bit nervous. And I keep talking about how 2018 was the year of regulated disruption, first with open banking and second with GDPR. I'm sure that as someone who deals day to day with consumer data, it's something that keeps you and your clients awake at night. What do you think are the key trends that will define digital transformation in a post-GDPR EU world? So for us, the big trend I've seen, a part of it is the insourcing. So in the media agency industry, we have a lot of clients who are saying they want to own the tech because traditionally they would just essentially, it's. I almost feel like the media agency is the outsourced CMO suite. And essentially we use all the tech, buy all the tech, have all the skills, have the right kind of environment to nurture those skills and drive innovation that a enterprise wouldn't. But with the, you could say, the consolidation of the 6,000 MarTech companies, if you've seen the Lumiscape yeah, yeah, by, the, by Chief yeah. MarTech yeah. is the guy who does it in his website, it gets bigger every year. But at the same time, sales, I did an analysis and Salesforce, Google, Adobe, and to some degree, Microsoft are picking off the biggest ones. And you had Tableau and Datarama both bought by yeah. um, Salesforce recently. Looker was bought by Google. So you look at that landscape and you say, well, I already know who the big guys are who are going to own everything. IBM, you know, mm -hmm. our alma mater has exited completely and yeah. sold off all of their marketing yeah. assets. So in that environment, what I think is happening is people with the GDPR and the need to control their data, they're saying, I want to own the tech. So anyone I've outsourced to, I now want to own the tech license. I want to try to take it in-house and run it. And what I've seen is some car crashes of people trying to run it because marketing still doesn't get funded because you can't do the direct ROI on what they did because, again, we can't use direct one-to-one -one conversion because it's against the law. So there's a lot of reasons why marketing will always be a rounding estimation, and that's okay because that is the part you have to have some, again, art in the numbers of the world. Yes. So that's my belief in where that's going to end. It's going to kind of level out to some sort of equilibrium. But the fascinating thing, again, for you and your listeners, is I do think, back to the point, in this attention economy, with all these rules, with these walled gardens running, then if you work in a brand, you need to make a reason for it to be your app, your website, your store, your program, whatever the heck it is, people need to want to come to you because there's content that's worthwhile. And if that content is then on a platform that you own that allows you to understand this is Andrew Grill and even it's not his robot, it's him. Mm. And here's all the things that I collect on him over time that allow me to personalize that experience. And actually, once I realize he's a power buyer, Andrew, why don't you come in and help us design some of our new products? Why don't you be a brand ambassador? Why don't I give you this kind of bonus? Not because it's your birthday, but because you've really shown really good customer feedback that's enlightening, not just it's really cool. Yeah. So I think there's huge opportunity there. And so I think it, the GDPR is an opportunity for all of us, but it is a shift in the model. And so therefore, people have to be ready for that. And so we are, but... You know, <laughs> I totally agree. I, I talk about, you know, I'm a glass half full person anyway. I think GDPR is a big opportunity. The fact the Data Protection Act was 20 years old and it is now been brought into the 21st century. It's about time. But on the back of that great hack documentary we talked about before, I think consumers are slowly becoming more informed about what big tech is doing. And we talked about this value exchange and they're aware of their own digital data footprints. So how do you manage your own personal data, given what you know about how the industry works? No, it's it's a great point. And actually, I've, I've volunteered at my local school to start educating the parents because I know the people in my NCT group and my local neighborhood, yeah, my local neighborhood, we, we talk about it. And they're always like, oh, here comes Lauren again with her data news. And I said, it's just about being informed. I 
I don't care what you do as a result, but I think you need to be informed as to how this works. And I think The Great Hack was something I sent out to pretty much everyone I knew. And I said, please watch this because you will start to understand that literally elections were swayed because they saw enough information, again, subliminally, that they did not vote in, I think it was Trinidad and Tobago. Is that where that happened? There was one yeah. of the places where they literally got one group of young people not to vote. Not to vote. Because they know campaign, the, don't vote. Yes, was literally it was a campaign, don't vote. And I thought to myself, that's what people don't recognize. Like you can get people to do things because that's why marketing is still getting funded for all these years, right? So so for my own personal data footprint, I was like, where is the value exchange to what you said? LinkedIn, I have a high value exchange. Yes. Google, I have a high value exchange. I don't have a value exchange with Facebook. It, I did at a point in my life, but then I found it to be voyeuristic and not useful. And I look at all the things about kids who are now in suicide, who now the millennials who aren't having sex because they're afraid of body shaming and, and people taking pictures of them and posting it on whatever. So I do worry. And because, again, I have this data tech mindset of how all the acquisitions Facebook and Google are making feed into this walled garden of all the data I have. I ultimately will be able to know exactly who I need to target against a particular behavior. And I think that's the critical bit, right, Andrew? The critical bit is, yes, they have lots of data. And yes, people, I said earlier, the data scientist asking the question into the data, if they don't know why and how the data has been collected, then it's hard. But if you have a lot of people who are looking at certain things, who are starting to trend towards topics, who are responding really well, then you can ask that question within that source of data to say, ah, this person's trending this particular way. So how do I get them to do this based on these levers? And that's a very, very different thing. And I think people think, oh, I don't care if anyone sees my browsing habits. But what about your kid who's one year old, who's now 15, and you posted their entire life? What if they don't want that posted? So I definitely say, like, you should not be posting about your children because they have no voice. So it, there's loads of options available now where you can use your own emails. There's a new company called Wire, started up by the guy who started Skype. Oh, yeah. So it's a Swiss-based kind of WhatsApp that's not quite fit for purpose yet, but I'm all over it because it's encrypted and it's not for advertising. And I think that's it, right? If we have some new social media sharing environments that are not based on advertising, but you pay, that's great because now there actually is, I'm getting this for this. And currently I think that people don't realize that they are paying by giving away their data and then ended up being targeted with things and doing things they didn't know they did. My favorite phrase is if the product is free, the product is me. Yes. All right. So as this is the Practical Futures podcast, what three things can our listeners do next week to embrace the power of data? Okay. So number one, we've already talked about the great hack. You've got to set some time in your diary to watch 90 minutes that. well spent. Yeah. hundred percent. It's on Netflix. Um, and, and have your phone ready so you can talk to all your friends while you're watching it and say, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. The next thing I think you should do is you should go into either Google or Facebook and basically ask for that download of what they, they have on you. And the next thing I think you should do is look at your phone Look at the settings in your Android or in your, you know, Apple phone or whatever, Huawei, whatever phone you're running, and understand how many of the apps you're actually using, what uh, is the microphone on, is there access to the camera, what, and why do these apps need that, and are you even still using it? Because your phones are listening. Because let's go back to my really critical thing, voice search is the next search. The current battle right now is over who wins the voice search. Is it Apple with Siri? Is it Amazon or is it Google? And yes, Microsoft is trying to be in there with, with theirs. But at the same time, it's no longer going to be a typed thing. Think about your kids asking Alexa things. So all of your apps that are on are actually taking in listening 
not because they're trying to do anything now, but they're trying to understand and build that database that already exists in words. And episode three of the Practical Futures podcast, we had James Poulter. It was all about voice and we talked about this. So go back and listen to that. Finally, Lauren, how can people find out more about you and your work? Oh, wow. Well, follow me on LinkedIn because I love to, to say all sorts of stuff there and keep you alert of the, you know, the data trails that you lead. But you, also, you post great stuff. I learned a lot you. from your stuff. Oh, thank you. And I also try to make it fun, right? I'm a huge American football fan. And so when I wrote the latest one inspired by the HBR article, it was very much about the data offensive and the data defensive. So I do think it's important to see how the CDO title is evolving, how data and business is evolving. And really back to your point about the future CMO, every role my COO role, the CFO, all of us are using data, but in a very, very new way. So if you understand the anatomy, let's say, of a business and how that data flows, you will be that much better at that role. And I do think those are the people that will then rise up into these roles into the future. Lauren, thank you so much for your time. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's been really fun. Can't wait to see you again. Thank you for listening to the Practical Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at futurist.london. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops at futurist.london. Until next time, this has been the Practical Futurist Podcast.